0: You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. Today's birthdays are Evelyn Lovig of Mason City, Jim Fazio of Des Moines, and Jeff Clark of Evansdale. We wish you all a very happy birthday. If you are hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. There are no obituaries in today's Des Moines Register, so we will continue with news. And here is Nicole with our next story.
1: All right. Um, There is another devastating wildfire that's burning in Hawaii, blazes destroying irreplaceable rainforest on Oahu. This is written by Audrey McAvoy from the Associated Press. This is out of Honolulu. A wildfire is burning in a remote Hawaii rainforest is underscoring a new reality for the normally lush island state just a few months after a devastating blaze on a neighboring island leveled an entire town and killed at least 99 people. No one was injured and no homes burned in the latest fire, which scorched through mountain ridges on Oahu, but the flames wiped out irreplaceable native forest land that is home to nearly two dozen fragile species. And overall, the ingredients are the same as they were in Maui's historic town of Lahaina. Severe drought fueled by climate change is creating fire in Hawaii, where it's almost never been seen before. J.C. Watson, the manager of Ko'olau Mountains Watershed Partnership, they take care of the island, said it was really a beautiful forest. He recalled it having ulehe fern, which is often dominating Hawaii's rainforest, and koa trees, whose wood has traditionally been used to make canoes, surfboards, and ukuleles. Watson said it's not a full-on clean burn, but it is pretty moonscape looking out there. The fact that is, this fire was Oahu's wetter windward side is a red flag that all of us, that there is change afoot. This is according to Sam Ohu-Gon III, a senior scientist and cultural advisor at the Nature Conservancy in Hawaii. The fire mostly burned inside an Oahu Forest National Wildlife Refuge that is home to 22 species listed as endangered or threatened by the U.S. government. They include eevee and elepeo birds, a tree snail called pupukani, And also the Hawaiian ori bat, but also known as Opeapea. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which manages the refuge, does not know yet what plants or wildlife may have been damaged or harmed by this fire. The fire incinerated 2.5 square miles since the first being spotted on October 30th, and it was contained 90% as of Friday. Officials were investigating the cause of that blaze roughly 20 miles north of Honolulu. The flames left gaping, dark, bald spots amid a blanket of thick green where that fire did not burn. The skeletons of blackened trees poked from the charred landscape. The burn area may seem relatively small compared to wildfires on U.S. continent, which can raise hundreds of square miles. But Hawaii's intact native ecosystems aren't large to begin with, especially on smaller islands like Oahu. So even limited fires have far-reaching consequences. One major concern is what plants will grow in the place of a native forest. Hawaii's native plants have evolved without encountering regular fires, and fire is not part of their natural life cycle. Faster-growing non-native plants with more seed tend to sprout in place of native species afterward. Watson said an Oahu forest near the latest fire had ulehi ferns, koa trees, and ohia trees before a blaze burned less than a square mile of it in 2015. Now, that land features invasive grasses that are more fire-prone and some slow-growing koa. A much larger fire in Wai'anae that is on the west side of Oahu took out one of the last remaining populations of a rare tree gardenia. There are cultural losses when native forest burns. Goon recorded an old central Oahu story about a warrior who was thrown off the cliff while battling an enemy chief. His fall was stopped by an ohia tree, another plant that's common in that area. Feathers from Hawaii's forest birds were once used to make cloaks and helmets that's worn by chiefs. The Mililani-Malka fire, that's named after the area where the fire began, burned in the Ko'olau mountains. The mountains are Oahu's wetter windward sign because they trap moisture and rain that moves across the island from the northeast. But repeated and more prolonged episodes of drought are making even the Ko'olau's dry. They expect more frequent Ko'olau fires in the future. Hawaii fires are almost always started by humans, so Goon says more needs to be done to raise awareness about prevention. Native forests could be further protected with buffer zones by planting less flammable vegetation in former sugarcane and pineapple plantation lands that's often found at lower elevations. This fire is also likely to affect Oahu's freshwater supply, although that is challenging to measure. Oahu's 1 million residents and visitors get their drinking water from aquifers, but that usually takes decades of rain to seep through the ground to recharge them. Native forests are the best at absorbing rain, so this disappearance of high quality forests certainly will have some effects. Firefighters in rain last week finally tampered down that blaze, but Goon urged the action now to make sure that doesn't turn into a yearly fire, nibbling away at the source of our water supply. Catholic campaign in Ohio
0: falls short. Results show divide on abortion within church. This is by Dan Horn of USA Today. Voters who approved Ohio's Issue 1 on Tuesday dealt a blow to Catholic bishops and activists who mounted an unprecedented campaign to stop abortion from becoming a constitutional right in the state. The church in Ohio spent more than $1.7 million trying to convince voters to reject the evils of abortion. Bishops attended fundraisers and recorded videos declaring the amendment radical and extreme. Catholics went door-to-door, held vigils, passed out glossy flyers, and put extra cash in the collection basket. They lost by a 14-point margin, 57 to 43 percent. Catholics are taught from childhood that abortion is a sin, an intrinsic evil that must be opposed without exception, and the Church's campaign against Issue 1 put money and energy behind that message. Through the end of October, the Archdiocese of Cincinnati alone contributed more than $1 million to the Protect Women Ohio Political Action Committee that led the charge against Issue 1, according to state camp- campaign finance records. The Diocese of Columbus kicked in 500000 and the Diocese of Cleveland gave another $200,000. Those totals don't include separate, undisclosed expenditures by the dioceses themselves for ads, signs, and campaign flyers, such as the Vote No Mailer, the archdiocese sent to 125,000 households in 19 counties. Final campaign spending reports come out on December 15th. At a time when some parishes and schools struggled to pay the bills, the church's investment was significant. The Archdiocese's $1 million contribution to the campaign is roughly what it cost the church to run Catholic charities last year. Despite voters' embrace of Issue 1, Catholic church leaders say they don't regret venturing so directly into politics or investing so much in the campaign. Your sacrifices prove that the church will never abandon her mission to support human life. Ohio's Catholic bishops wrote in an open letter to the faithful on Wednesday. We will persevere in this mission. The campaign's failure exposed a divide between the Church's uncompromising moral and spiritual arguments against abortion and the more nuanced view of most Americans, including millions of Catholics. Cincinnati Archbishop Dennis Schnur called the amendment horrifying and said its passage Tuesday is deeply disturbing. The bishops in their letter repeated their assertion that Issue 1 would harm women, children, and families. Today is a tragic day, they wrote. However, Pew Research Center polls, among others, show that roughly 6 in 10 Americans believe abortion should be legal in some or all cases. Those same polls find Catholics aren't much different from the rest of the population, with about 56% saying abortion should be legal in some or all cases. The election results Tuesday tracked closely to those numbers, with nearly 57% of, of Ohioans voting yes for an amendment that guarantees the right to an abortion through fetal viability or about 24 weeks. After viability, the law allows the state to enact restrictions with exceptions when necessary to protect the life or health of the mother. Throughout the campaign, the bishops described those exceptions as radical and the viability threshold as unreasonable. The outcome Tuesday suggests they struggled to win over some Catholics as well as non-Catholics. A Cincinnati Inquirer analysis of the election results in the U.S. religion census, which is not associated with the U.S. census, found that a majority of voters in several Ohio counties with large Catholic populations voted in favor of Issue 1. Among the 10 counties with the highest percentage of Catholics, half voted yes on Issue 1, including Gauega and Lake counties in northern Ohio. Hamilton County, with a Catholic population of 21%, backed Issue 1 by one of the widest margins in the state, with 65% voting yes. Catholics for Choice, which supported Issue 1, complained throughout the campaign about the bishop's spending to defeat the amendment and attributed its passage to rank-and-file Catholics rejecting their message. The group's president, Jamie Manson, said in a statement Tuesday, tonight's victory demonstrates just how out of touch Ohio's bishops are with the lives of those they are called to serve. The hierarchy and their radical far-right allies must stop perpetuating stigma and shame. What the church will do next in the political arena, arena is an open question. Catholic leaders always have advocated against abortion, and Catholics have been at the forefront of the anti-abortion movement from the founding of Right to Life more than a half century ago to Catholic justices on the U.S. Supreme Court voting to overturn Roe v. Wade last year. The bishops have said their role in the Issue 1 campaign was more direct than in the past because abortion was on the ballot for the first time, and they felt compelled to get involved. They were able to do so because federal law allows tax-exempt religious organizations to campaign for or against nonpartisan ballot issues. The Church's teaching on abortion are clear and unchanging, said Archdiocese spokeswoman, spokeswoman Jennifer Schock. If Catholics understand those teachings and choose to ignore them, they are committing a sin in the eyes of the Church. Schock said the Church hasn't wavered it rests on the individual and their own conscience even in defeat shock said the campaign against issue 1 served a purpose reminding catholics why they fight this fight she said we have had a heroic heroic effort there's value in the people of the archdiocese and the church coming together strongly to promote life The state's Catholic bishops offered few clues about whether they now would get behind a new anti-abortion effort, such as a national abortion ban, or step back from their political activism of the past several months. But they made clear their work won't end with issue one. Schnoor wrote this, the passage of issue one shows that there remains a desperate need for conversion
1: of hearts and minds. All right, and then the next story is also from the Nation and World Extra. Capital Rider from Arizona plans to run for Congress. Jacob Chansley, the spear-carrying rider whose horned fur hat bare chests and face paint, made him one of the more recognizable figures in the January 6, 2021 assault on the U.S. Capitol, apparently aspires to be a member of Congress. Online paperwork shows the 35-year-old Chancellor filed a candidate statement of interest on Thursday, indicating he wants to run as a Libertarian in next year's election for Arizona's 8th congressional district seat. U.S. Representative Debbie Lesko, a 64-year-old Republican representing that district since 2018, announced last month that she won't seek re-election. Her term officially ends in January of 2025. Chansley pleaded guilty to a felony charge of obstructing an official proceeding in connection with the Capitol insurrection. He was sentenced to 41 months in prison in November of 2021 and served about 27 months before being transferred to Phoenix Halfway House in March of 2023. Chansley grew up in the greater Phoenix area. And Chansley is among the more than 700 people who have been sentenced in relation to Capitol riot-related federal crimes. Authorities said that Chansley was among the first rioters to enter the Capitol building, and and he acknowledged using a bullhorn to rouse the mob. Although he previously called himself the QAnon shaman, Chansley has since disavowed the QAnon movement. He identified himself as Jacob Angeli Chansley in the candidate's statement of interest paperwork that's filed with the Arizona Secretary of State's office. The U.S. Constitution doesn't prohibit felons from holding federal office, but Arizona law prohibits felons from voting until they have completed their sentence and have their civil rights restored. Emails that sent to Chansley and his attorney seeking comment on his political intentions weren't immediately returned on Sunday.
0: Another story about um, representatives in Congress longtime New York Democrat to leave Congress. This by Carolyn Thompson of the Associated Press from Buffalo, New York. U.S. Representative Brian Higgins, Democrat of New York, said Sunday he will leave Congress before the end of his current term after growing frustrated with dysfunction in Washington. It's just a time for change, and I think this is the time, Higgins, age 64, said at a news conference. He plans to leave office during the first week of February. Higgins, who serves on the House Ways and Means and Budget Committees, began his 10th term in January. Congress is not the institution that I went to 19 years ago. It's a very different place today, he said. We're spending more time doing less and the American people are not being served. Higgins joins a number of Congress members who have recently announced they would not seek re-election next year, including Republican Representative Brad Wenstrup of Ohio, who added his name to the list last week. Higgins said, I want to come back to the city and serve this city that I have represented in Washington for the past 19 years. He had his announcement at the Buffalo History Museum, He said he had been fielding offers, but did not know what he would do next. Higgins' departure will likely set up a special election for the spring in New York's heavily Democratic 26th Congressional District, which includes parts of Erie and Niagara counties, including the cities of Buffalo and Niagara Falls. While in Congress, Higgins has been credited with leading efforts to revitalize Buffalo's waterfront starting in 2005 when he negotiated funding from the New York Power Authority, which sells hydropower produced with water diverted from Niagara Falls. He is co-chair of the Northern Border Caucus and Bipartisan Cancer Caucus and a member of the Great Lakes Task Force. Senator Tim Kennedy said in a statement, his work in Washington and western New York will be remembered for what it was, strategic, innovative, and at its core, always focused on why we do what we do as public servants, which is to help people. Kennedy, also a Buffalo Democrat, is considered a potential candidate to replace Higgins
1: couple of short stories. There's actually an Iowa story in this uh, nation and world section. It is an Illinois man dying after being fatally shot in the face by a fellow hunter. This is out of Panora in Iowa. An Illinois hunter has died after being shot in the face by someone in his hunting party. This is according to an official with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. The department said that its law enforcement arm is investigating the shooting death of Sack Ekelhoff, 26-year-old, of Chesterfield, Illinois. Somebody called 911 around 1 p.m. on Saturday to report that Eaglehoff has been shot while hunting waterfowl in the Bayes Branch Wildlife Area just north of Panora. Emergency medics rushed him to a spot to be picked up by a medical helicopter, but he died on the way. Conservation officer Jeremy King said that the shooting appeared to be accidental. The Guthrie County Sheriff's Office and the Iowa State Patrol are also helping with that investigation. This wildlife is about 40 miles northwest of Des Moines. Another short, small animals may have been fed to reptiles out of Tucson, Arizona from the Associated Press. Roughly 250 animals that were transferred from California to Arizona may have ended up being fed to reptiles. That's according to two humane societies. Tucson TV station KVOA investigated the animals' whereabouts in September, a month after 300 small animals were transferred from the overcrowded San Diego Humane Society to the Humane Society of Southern Arizona in Tucson. The Arizona Republic reported that the transfer was a collaboration between the two groups and that the animals that went to a man who ran for a reptile breeding company that also sold both live and frozen animals for reptile feed. The newspaper said the man ended up returning 62 of the animals to the Tucson-based Humane Society, leaving about 250 rabbits, guinea pigs, rats, and mice to an unknown fate. Humane Society of Southern Arizona Board Chair Robert Garcia said at a news conference, we could not have conceived something like this happening in connection with our organization. I'm heartbroken for the animals. I'm heartbroken for our community. I'm heartbroken for our organization whose mission is to protect and save animals. The Humane Society of Southern Arizona fired its CEO last month and also accepted the resignation of its chief operating officer. The Tucson organization now is considering legal actions against the reptile be- breeding company with the completed report of its internal investigation expected next month. The San Diego Humane Society's investigation remains ongoing.
0: Continuing with some of the brief um, notices, U.S. military says five crew members died when aircraft crashed. This from Berlin. Five U.S. service people were killed when a military helicopter crashed over the eastern Mediterranean Sea during a training mission, U.S. officials said on Sunday. The military's European command said all five crew members on board were killed when the aircraft went down during a routine air refueling mission as part of military training. The military said that the cause is under investigation. There are no indications of any hostile activity involved. It wasn't immediately clear which military service the aircraft belonged to. The Air Force has sent additional squadrons to the region, and the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier, which has an array of aircraft on board, has also been operating in the eastern Mediterranean. Pan Mass Challenge donates record twenty-seven million. Or I'm sorry, seventy-two million dollars to cancer charity. This is from Boston. The Pan Mass Challenge handed over a record seventy-two million dollars to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute on Sunday, moving the pioneering cross-state bicycle ride within sight of one billion dollars raised. The summertime ride to the tip of Cape Cod is the largest single event athletic fundraiser in the world, raising $972 million for cancer care since 1980. It is the largest single contributor to Dana-Farber and its Jimmy Fund. A total of 6,500 participants cycled up to 211 miles across the state. For the 44th PMC in August. Two arrested after apartment fire was possibly caused by fireworks, this from Atlanta. Two people have been arrested in connection with a fire that damaged an Atlanta apartment complex and led to more than a hundred evacuations. Atlanta news outlets reported that the fire happened Friday night. Firefighters were still on the scene Saturday putting out hot spots. Investigators believe the fire may have been caused by fireworks being ignited on the roof, police said. Seventeen people were treated for smoke inhalation as a result of the blaze at the Reserve at La Vista Walk Apartments. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that the Red Cross is assisting 28 displaced residents. The suspects face charges of first-degree criminal damage to property and reckless conduct. An Atlanta police officer was among the apartment building's residents. And finally, this short piece, Greece's opposition Syriza party. Greece's main opposition party suffered a split Sunday when a left-wing faction announced it was breaking away, accusing the party's recently elected leader of abandoning its core ideologies for a sort of right-wing populism. Umbrella, a faction led by Euclid's Euclid Toskalotis, a former finance minister during Syria's government of 2015 19, announced its departure with a statement that accused party leader Stefanos Kazalakis of Trumpian practices and right leaning populism. The once dominant party has been in disarray ever since its resounding defeat by conservative New Democracy in double elections in May and June. Already in opposition since 2019, Sriza had hoped to regain power. Instead, it was roundly disavowed, falling in the most recent election to 17.8% compared to New Democracy's 40.6%, a result that led longtime leader Alexis Tsipras to announce his resignation.
1: And we're sailing closer to the end of our broadcast this half hour, so we'll end on 50 states. Uh, We begin with the highlight state today. It is Mississippi. There's an image of an election resolution board counting absentee ballots on Wednesday at the Hinds County Courthouse in Jackson, Mississippi. People in the state's largest county are demanding answers about why some polling places ran out of ballots and voters had to wait for them to be replenished on the day the state was deciding its most competitive government. Governor's race in a generation. It's not clear how many people were left without voting, but activists say that election officials' failure is shocking, especially in a state where civil rights leaders were beaten or killed in the 1960s and earlier to secure voting rights for black residents. Republican Governor Tate Reeves defeated Democratic challenger Brandon Presley in Mississippi's most expensive gubernatorial race. And now going by alphabetical order, in Montgomery, Alabama, a black riverboat co-captain at the center of a riverfront brow that drew national attention has now been accused of misdemeanor assault in the melee melee by one of the white boaters in the fight. Court records show the co-captain faces a charge of misdemeanor assault in municipal court. In Anchorage, Alaska, four homeless people have died in the last week on the streets as a major winter storm dropped more than two feet of snow in the state's largest city. The deaths bring the total number of people living outdoors in that city this year to 49. It is a record, according to tracking that's kept by the Anchorage Daily News. In Prescott, Arizona, a judge who was charged with extreme DUI this year has now resigned. The State Commission on Judicial Court announced that Sally Hancock has agreed to not serve as a judicial officer in that state again. In Russellville, Arkansas, the Yale County Sheriff's Department said the region's most wanted methamphetamine dealer has now been taken into custody after eight months on the run. Daniel Wilson fled in February while facing charges of possession with purpose to deliver, according to a news outlet. In Monticello, California, a system of nets intended to catch boulders and other debris during rainstorms in a hillside community, it was devastated by mudslides five years ago, has now been removed over a funding dispute. The nonprofit project for resilient communities installed the ring nets after flooding triggered a debris flow that destroyed hundreds of homes. And in Pueblo, Colorado, the city mayoral race is heading to a runoff between city council president Heather Graham and incumbent mayor Nick Gradesar. That's according to the last round of vote that's tallied released by the Pueblo County Clerk's Office. And in Killingly, Connecticut, Democrats have flipped the town school board in last week's municipal elections. Following more than a year of controversy over a grant-funded mental health center, the wins in a Republican-leaning town come after a series of controversies and official state inquiry. And finally, in Denver, Delaware, Delaware State University is headed to the moon. Thanks to an $899,000 grant from the National Aeronautical Space Agency, the institution's engineering and optics expertise will be utilized in the Lunar Land Rover mission.
0: It's been our pleasure to
1: read for you this
0: morning. I'm Rachel Mithelman. My partner at the microphone has been Nicole Tam. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
2: Welcome back. Your new readers are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett, and here's Carol with today's opinion section
3: Call for a ceasefire in Israel Hamas War. This is by Rami Anash Ashibi, guest columnist. The White House announcement of daily four hour pauses of Israeli attacks in light of the carnage and destruction. Gazans have endured over the past month is woefully inadequate, given the magnitude of the devastation. <coughs> Excuse me, The bombing campaign has led United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres to declare that the Gaza Strip, one of the most impoverished and densely concentrated open-air prisons in the world, is now becoming, quote, a graveyard for children. Unlike other horrific spaces of suffering right now, such as Sudan, Congo, and Ethiopia, it is U.S. weapons and U.S. money bankrolling Israel's war machine with billions of dollars annually. Yet, when President Joe Biden was asked Thursday what the chances of a ceasefire were, he answered, None. When asked whether Israelis' retaliatory strikes have been working since Hamas attacked on October 7th, he responded, They're working in the sense that we're hitting the targets they're seeking, as if to confirm that this is a joint U.S.-Israeli-led operation. The only Palestinian in the room. Two weeks ago, I was the only Palestinian among five other American Muslims to meet with President Biden. The meeting had been planned months earlier to discuss a White House effort around Islamophobia, similar to the one it introduced in May around anti-Semitism. Yet, with the brutal realities in Gaza worsening by the hour, the meeting agenda shifted to challenging the President and his administration on its policies and language around what many were seeing as indifference and its contribution to Palestinian suffering. I was never comfortable with being the only Palestinian in this meeting. And after consulting others and hearing a horrendous statement made by the President October 25th, questioning the number of Palestinians killed, I made up my mind to withdraw. Other participants had misgivings about being in this meeting without significant representation of affected Palestinian community members. And I knew my decision to pull out would only add to that anxiety. A Palestinian-American woman from Gaza who was originally slated to be among folks to meet with the president told me, I lost 100 relatives in Gaza this week and I don't have the luxury of getting caught up in who is in that room. Right now, you are the only Palestinian today who can look directly at that man and speak to our pain and call for an immediate ceasefire. With that, I consented to being in the room. President Biden called for a ceasefire. In that October 26th meeting, I asked the president to call for a ceasefire. We reminded him that it is a call that 66% of the American electorate and countless voices across the globe are making louder every day. I added that we would like to see the White House support a summit that brings many more Palestinian-American leaders and others, from all walks of life who have been standing with this community into the conversation to address things such as the penalization and even criminalization of calling for a Palestine free of military occupation. Settlers supported violence, housing demolition, and ethnic cleansing. I said we needed him and others to stand with those, including thousands of Jewish Americans and Israelis to reject the idea that the support for Palestinian self-determination, or critique of Israel, is synonymous with the dark and evil history of anti-Semitism or with Hamas attacks. The president took responsibility for his wording on the death toll and apologized for generating any perception that he devalued Palestinian suffering. He also said he would support a summit and agreed that calling for a free Palestine and challenging Israel policy should not be conflated with anti-Semitism or the basis for backlash that students, academics, and other professionals who are making those calls are receiving. Two weeks later, the situation in Gaza and America has worsened. Tuesday, the only Palestinian American in Congress was censured for something she said at a rally while dehumanizing language used by the U.S. and Israeli officials, conflating all Palestinians with Nazis and human animals, goes unchecked. The need to abandon neutrality. I have been a community organizer on Chicago south side for the past three decades and see much of the world through those experiences. Shortly after the bombings of Gaza in 2014, we held an event at a local synagogue called Beyond Gaza, inspired by the Reverend Martin Luther King's Beyond Vietnam speech in 1967, often cited as the speech that connected the evils of militarism and war in Vietnam to exploitation and racism here in the United States. We used the forum as a moment to try to further challenge our diverse communities to think about what alliances beyond transactional solidarity could look like here and what it could provide as a model for our communities across the globe. We cited the letter that Rabbi Robert Marx, founder of the Jewish Council of Urban Affairs, wrote explaining why he decided to march with King in 1966. Having witnessed civil rights marchers being brutally attacked, The rabbi wrote about the need to abandon neutrality in this moment. He said, I was afraid, and I am afraid now. I saw how the concentration camp could have occurred and how men's hatred could lead them to kill. I was on the wrong side of the street. I should have been with the marchers. This time I will be on the right side of the street. Perhaps beyond the excruciating pain of this moment, we can pray for a healing that borrows from the spirit of kings beyond Vietnam and Marxist critical letter, a spirit that opens up space for the courage, conviction, and love to challenge all our communities to live up to a vision for justice, mercy, equity, and peace here and across the globe. And the writer of this article, Rami nash is a MacArthur Foundation fellow, is founder and executive director of the Inner City Muslim Action Network. So, here is Jeff.
2: The GOP seems to be missing voters' messages. This uh, opinion piece by Ingrid Jacques, who is a columnist uh, from the USA Today. She writes, I agree with Ron DeSantis. As he said at Wednesday's GOP presidential debate, I'm sick of Republicans losing elections. The Florida governor made this dig against former President Donald Trump, who didn't show up again. I'm starting to wonder about other conservatives, though. It kind of seems like they want to lose. I don't want to see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris get a second term. And, with a year to go until the presidential election, the GOP can't dither in honing its message, or its candidates. Tuesday's elections were another reminder Republicans are out of touch with what most of the country wants. In Ohio, Kentucky, and Virginia, abortion was on the ballot and voters overwhelmingly sided with abortion rights and candidates who support them. From what we've seen in the midterm elections last year and Tuesday's results, that issue alone could determine the outcome of 2024. After the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, regulating abortion returned to the states and the people. Many conservatives had long said that's what they wanted, although now they appear to be eyeing a national ban or some national restrictions. Nikki Haley, a former South Carolina governor and former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, stood out at Wednesday's debate from the other four candidates in her stance on abortion. She repeated how she is unapologetically pro-life, but that she understands any kind of national ban isn't possible now, given the political dynamics in Congress, and she seems content with letting the states grapple with the issue. As much as I'm pro life, I don't judge anyone for being pro choice, and I don't want them to judge me for being pro life, she said. South Carolina Representative Nancy Mace has echoed similar sentiments, and other Republicans really need to pay attention. In case the MAGA crowd has forgotten, Trump is also opposed to a federal ban and has criticized states enacting strict bans, as DeSantis did in Florida. Although with Trump, his views on abortion seem more politically expedient than deeply held. Voters in Ohio this week made it clear they weren't happy with the election that, or that with the <clears throat> excuse me, with the direction that state was going in. Republican Governor Mike DeWine and the GOP legislature had signed off on a six-week ban with no exceptions for rape or incest which no doubt motivated many people to go to the polls. Roughly one in five Republicans supported the measure to amend Ohio's Constitution, along with a majority of independent voters. What's ironic to me in such states as Michigan, which passed a similar constitutional abortion amendment last year, and Ohio, is that the pro-life proponents ended up with much less l- excuse me, much more lenient abortion provisions than those states had before Roe. In other words, it got worse. If Republican politicians don't come up with a plan, and soon, on how to address abortion, they will keep losing on this issue. Top of the ticket really matters. Don't settle for Trump. It's not all gloom and doom for Republicans, however. A CNN exit poll in Ohio found that voters trust the GOP more than the econ- More with the economy. Other polls have consistently found that Republicans come out ahead on economic issues, immigration, crime, and national security. The party needs to play to those strengths, which means the. GOP-controlled U.S. House needs to get its act together and prove it can accomplish the most basic of tasks, such as funding the federal government and sending aid to our allies overseas. It's running out of time to do that, and Republicans must have a candidate at the top of the ticket who can speak eloquently on all these issues. As Desantis said at the debate, Trump, who remains the GOP front-runner, is not the same candidate he was in 2016. Too much has happened, and he comes with too much baggage. Call me a dreamer, but DeSantis or Haley at the top could bring fresh enthusiasm for a party that's lost its way. And best of all, they'll have the strongest shot at beating Biden. Carol?
3: Thank you, Jeff. And um, on to the sports pages. Um, beginning with the sports on TV. That's for today, Monday, November 13th. Now, the times they give are all Eastern times, so we'll have to uh, deduct an hour. Uh, For the college basketball, men's, 6.30 p.m., FS1. Michigan plays at St. John's at 7 p.m. on ACCN. Florida Gulf Coast at Pittsburgh, CBSSN, East Tennessee State, plays at Butler. 8 p.m., BTN Rider at Nebraska, PAC, 12N, Southern U at Arizona, at 8.30 p.m. tonight, FS1, Xavier at Purdue, at 9 p.m., CBSSN, UC, Santa Barbara at UTEP at 10 p.m., PAC 12N, CS Bakerfield at California. And that's it for the men's college basketball. For the women's college basketball, at 6 p.m. on BTN, Kansas at Penn State. Uh, PAC 12N, Cali Poly, as is at California, at 8 p.m., SECN, is Florida A&M at Florida. And that's it for the women's basketball. Golf today at 2.30 p.m. on TV. Golf, the Golf uh, Channel. The Southwest Airlines Showcase at Cedar Crest. First round Cedar Crest Golf Course, Marysville, Washington. For MLB Baseball, 6 p.m. on MLBM. It's BBWAA Rookie of the Year for NBA Basketball at 7.30 p.m. tonight. NBA TV, I'm sorry, these times I'm still giving you our Eastern Times. New York at Boston <clears throat> at 10 p.m. NBA TV, Cleveland at Sacramento. And then moving to NFL football at 8.15 p.m., ABC and ESPN. Denver at Buffalo, ESPN Two, Denver at Buffalo, Manning cast. And on to hockey, NHL hockey, 8 p.m. NHLN has hockey Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And on to soccer's, this is the men's soccer, 3:45 uh, a.m. Uh, I guess that's past, isn't it? FS two. FIFA U17 World Cup group was on. Uh, the stage was Spain versus Mali, Group B was Surakata, Indonesia. And then at 6:45 a.m another one already gone. Uh, FS2, FIFA U17 World Cup group was on. Um, that was Uzbekistan versus Canada, Group B. So, Surakata, Indonesia and the last item is tennis and at 6 a.m. this morning um, on tennis ATP finals doubles round robin At 8 30 a.m. was tennis ATP finals struggles round robin at 12 30 p.m. today uh, Tennis ATP finals doubles round robin and the final one is at 3 p.m. Tennis ATP Finals Singles Round Robin. Jeff, back to you.
2: Well, the four major college uh, women's basketball teams uh, in Iowa played each other over the weekend. <clears throat> Here's how they came out. <clears throat> Clark is now Iowa's scoring career scoring leader after a win versus UNI. There's been no elaborate countdown, no months-long discussion about what this moment would mean. It's been that inevitable that Caitlin Clark would eventually own this record. The Iowa women's basketball superstar became the program's all-time leading scorer in Sunday's 94-53 romp over Northern Iowa at the McLeod Center. Clark's record-breaker came on a spinning and one bucket midway through the third quarter part of another incredible triple-double stat line, 24 points, 11 assists, 10 rebounds. Her 2,805th point gave her the record. Clark entered this season needing 88 points to shatter Gustafson's mark. She piled up half that number in Thursday's win over Virginia Tech alone, when, not if, she would move into first place on Sunday became the most relevant question. Bigger marks are now firmly in play. Kelsey Mitchell's Big Ten scoring mark, that's 3,402 points, should fall next, with a good chance that Kelsey Plum's Division One women's basketball mark of 3,527 points comes after that. Another incredible scoring campaign and Pete Maravich's Division I record of 3,667 points could topple later in the season. Clark's performance wasn't Iowa's only noteworthy development. After an 0-9 for start to the season from deep, fifth-year sharpshooter Gabby Marshall erupted for 17 points on a game-high five trays. Clark repeatedly found her veteran teammate open in the corner or on the wing, further cementing the trust Marshall has earned as a reliable weapon. On the interior, Hannah Stelke had delivered or delivered another efficient afternoon with 16 points on 6-for-9 shooting. A massive rebounding edge allowed Iowa to thrive from every angle while suffocating UNI defensively. Reserve post Addison O'Grady returned to action after not playing Thursday as well. This was a game that could have been tricky had Iowa not been locked in. The Hawkeyes have already seen the two teams ranked ahead of them Lose, number one LSU last Monday, and number two Connecticut on Sunday. And Iowa could have been in danger of joining that list with poor performance. Instead, the Hawkeyes will likely vault to number one when the polls come out on Monday. Clark is the main reason that Iowa is now operating in this elite orbit. She should sit atop the Hawkeyes record book for quite some time. And quickly, before we go to Dear Abby, the Drake topped Iowa State at the Knapp Center. Moments before downing, uh, excuse me, moments after knocking down another big three-pointer, Drake women's basketball star Taylor McCauley held up both of her hands at center court of the Knapp Center, further igniting an already frenzied fan base. McCauley tallied 27 points and hit a pair of huge three-pointers as Drake held off a comeback by Iowa State and beat the Cyclones 85-73 at the Knapp Center on Sunday. Drake improved to 3-0 on the season and tallied its first win in the series since 2019. Iowa State had won back-to-back meetings between the two. Last season's showdown was canceled due to inclement weather. But the two teams made up for lost time with what turned into one of the most entertaining matchups in the rivalry's history. Drake built a 20-point lead early in the third quarter and then watched it disappear. Iowa State stormed back from the giant deficit with a big third quarter that saw the Cyclones outscore Drake 27-14. The Cyclones eventually took a 67-65 lead on a layup by Isnel Nadabu in the fourth quarter. But it wouldn't last. Drake responded with an 8-0 run that was highlighted by McCauley, who sank two three-pointers to give Drake a 73-67 lead. Iowa State fell to 1-1 one and one on this season. Back to you, Carol.
3: And time for Dear Abby. Dear Abby, my father-in-law and I are just cut from different cloth. We are political opposites, although we do get along for the most part. On a family vacation, we were visiting them, we were going out for dinner. My wife and I knew he was going to take us to a restaurant we both have ethical issues with. I handed him a 10% off coupon for a different nearby restaurant and said, here is another option for dinner. When he responded that he thought we'd go to the first place, I said, sorry, I have some moral issues with it and I won't eat there. Is there somewhere else we can go? He then blew up at me saying things like, if you're not paying, what difference does it make? And since you're our guest, it's rude of you to refuse. My wife agreed that he was out of line. What do you think? Was it rude of us as their guests, or rude of him as a host not to accommodate us? Signed, Not going there in Nebraska. Abby says, Dear not going, you have a loyal and loving wife. However, A more honest and less biased spouse would have pointed out, privately, that your manners were atrocious. A gracious guest accepts the hospitality offered by their host rather than trying to turn the occasion into a demonstration of cancel culture. You owe your father-in-law an apology. Second letter. Dear Abby, my husband and I are retired and are both managing separate cancer diagnoses. This makes our finances hard to predict in the event one of us needs expensive medication. We did a good job saving for retirement, and we live comfortably. Our adult daughter contracted Lyme disease 10 years ago and became very ill. She endured years of painful treatments, which were not covered by insurance, during which time her husband divorced her. We stepped in to help with her medical bills. While the Lyme is no longer detectable in her system, some of the symptoms have never completely gone away. Now she's undergoing more tests looking at hormone imbalance. My husband is angry that we are still paying some of her medical bills. She works, has insurance, and pays for what she can. We can afford to help her, and I don't understand why her father doesn't want to help her anymore. We've argued about this many times over the years, and I'm frustrated with the situation. I'm not willing to give up on her like so many others have. What can I say to him the next time he confronts me about paying her medical bills? Signed, Devoted in Oregon. And Abby says, Dear Devoted, it may be time to stop arguing with your husband about this. Your adult daughter works and has medical insurance. You and your husband are both medically fragile. While I understand your desire to protect your daughter, you should not be supplementing her income if it threatens your access to the medications you may need in the future. Jeff, back to you.
2: Well, that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, the 13th of November, 2023. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone for this last half hour has been Carol Lockard. Earlier, you heard from Nicole Tam and Rachel Mithelman. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, IRIS' first and only radio reading service.